that we've reduced worship to this kind of thing where almost like God kind of exists for us. But here's the thing is that he doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. We don't, he doesn't exist for us, but we actually exist for him. We were created, the scripture teaches us, to worship him, to make him known, and to bring him honor. He, was, he did not create us so that we could use him. He created us so that he could have relationship with us and that we would worship him, that we would make him known, and we would bring him honor. And sometimes we reduce worship to this whole thing, like if I do all these things, then God has to do this for me. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a father. I have children. And sometimes our children, if you've been a parent long enough, think that if they do all these things, then you should do what they want you to do because I've done all these things. How many people know that usually your response is um, doing jobs around the house is just called being part of the family. It's not do these jobs and get a reward. Hello? I would have thought I would have get some parents on side this morning with that one. Just like you doing things for them shouldn't be motivated by trying to get a response out of them that you want. But we should do it because that's the right thing to do. And I think we have to understand that in all of that, if we reduce it to a bunch of things that we do, we miss what worship is because worship isn't something we do. Worship is something we are. We don't do worship, we are worship. Our whole entire lives, and yes, we had singing today, and we're worshiping God, and we have that kind of corporate sense within our Sundays where we're worshiping God, absolutely. But worship is not just something we do on Sunday. Worship is something that we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, where the Bible says this, let your light shine before those that they may know that I'm your God, and they will give honor to me. And so our whole entire life should be a life that expresses the worship of God, a thankfulness for what he has done. We're created to worship him from the depths of our heart. And there are several things that, as, our, as the pastor of the church that, and my name's Craig, by the way, in case you don't know. Um, should have done that at the start. But there are a whole lot of things that we do really well. But I think if there's one area that all of us, individually and corporately, could do better, it's living a life of worship. And it's really something that is close to my heart because I believe that we're created to worship him from the depths of our hearts. And, you know, if you haven't grown up in church and this is an all-new environment to you, you know, you can come into church some Sundays and people are standing for like half an hour singing songs and doing stuff like this. And it's like, that's weird. And we had a young man here on Friday night, got prayed for, got hit by the power of the Holy Spirit, went down under the power of God and... And one of the youth was freaking out, thought something serious had happened to him. Another one said um, that they wanted to fall down too, with no understanding at all about what it was all about. And then another one was trying to explain it to another one that it's a little bit like off the movie Avatar. <laughs> so there can be some really weird things that happen in church, yes? Which, if you're not brought up in it, those of us that have been around for a long time, we just take it for granted. But for those that haven't been brought up in this environment, there's some weird stuff that happens in church. If you look at it from somebody who has no ideas, point of view. And so I want to I explain to you this morning, whether you've been saved a long time or a short time, 
why we lift our hands and exactly what does it accomplish when we do this in worship. Now, I'm not saying that this is worship. It's part of worship. But I think that there's something powerful that happens in the life of an individual when we're able to do this in his presence without any fear of those that are around us. And I think the best person that we could kind of get an idea around worship would be King David, who wrote most of the Psalms, which is just poetry and worship and songs. And the Bible says this, that he was a man after God's own heart. And so if we're going to get worship right, I'm pretty sure the best thing that we could do is see what David says about it. And so in Psalm 63, verse 1, it says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no waters. Now this is a really difficult time in David's life when he writes this and I don't know about you but I can relate to what he's saying because there has been times in my life and maybe you're going through that time right now in your life and it reflects your current situation where it feels dry, it feels parched, it feels like God isn't there, it feels like everything is going wrong that can go wrong, and you've been praying and you've been doing all the right things, and nothing seems to be shifting, nothing seems to be changing, and it may feel dry right now for you, and it may feel desolate for you right now, maybe life isn't going the way that you thought it would go. And you're like, man, this is, this is not what I need. Well, David is in the same situation as what you are when he writes the psalm, but his point of reference that he's going to is he's crying out to God and he's saying, he's not saying, where are you? But he's saying, I desperately need you. I need you. You are my God. I earnestly seek you. I give all of my being to you. I'm in a dry place and a parched place, but I understand that the answer in the dryness is not to complain about the dryness, but to start to worship the one that can bring nutrients and a river into my dryness. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary, which is just a fancy word for inside a building and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life and my lips will glorify you. What a statement that your love, God's love is better than life. Why is God's love better in life? Because if we understand the scriptures, we understand this, that his love never fails, that his love never leaves us nor forsakes us, that his life will never fade away, that the love of God goes on and on and on. It never goes away. It never ceases. It never ends because love isn't something that God does, but love is who he is. God is love. It's not something that he does. It's who he is. It it pours out of every part of who he is. And your love is something that he's saying here, that, that his love is something that we could never earn. God's love is something that we certainly don't deserve But David understands in this situation that because of that love, man, I got to bring you some praise in this situation because it may be dry and it may be parched, but man, your love is beyond my wildest dreams. And how could I not praise you in the midst of understanding your love? And in verse four, it says, and I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift my Now, I think we've got to remember here in this moment that David is not in a good space. 
He's been pursued by Saul, his father-in-law, who's trying to kill him. He, he, he is not praising God because things are going good. Unfortunately for all of us, and I include myself in that, I'm really good at talking about how great God is when things are going well. Yeah? Come on. But, but David is trying to show us here that worship isn't something that we do dependent on circumstances, but worship is something that we do because we're created to worship him in spite of what is going on. And when we understand how great his love is, when we understand that God is the only one that can bring any relief to my situation, then why would you turn away from worshiping the very thing that can bring his presence into your situation? And he's saying here, you know, just because it's not good doesn't mean I'm not going to praise. I'm thanking you that even though I'm going through a difficult time, you're still a good God. Even though I may understand what's going on, even though my circumstances are not good at the moment, you are good. And I will worship you no matter what. In your name, because of who you are, I will lift up my hands to praise and glorify you. It's an act of worship in a circumstance or in a time where he may not even feel like worshiping. Here's the thing I, I believe wholeheartedly is you cannot experience the grace of God without having a heart of gratitude for it. You know, as a parent, when your kids don't show signs of gratitude, you're less likely to do something for them, aren't you? How many of you had a situation where you've done something for your kids and, and, and they're all excited that you've done it and they're about to leave the room or leave the lounge after you've told them this great thing that you've done for them and you stop them and go, excuse me, have you forgotten something? Yeah? How many of you have done that? Yeah. What were you looking for? Thank you. Some gratitude. And I think that when we get stuck into worship being a kind of system, it's not coming from a heart of gratitude. It's coming from, oh, if I do all these things, then God has to do this. And I don't know about you, but as a dad, and God's way better than me, but if my kids were just doing stuff to get something from me, me being the stubborn person that I am, <laughs> would not give them what they wanted until I saw some gratitude for what they already have. Are you with me this morning? See, when you truly understand who he is, you can't help but express your heart and worship to him. And I just want to talk to the guys just for a moment, not because I'm picking on men, but because there's an interesting scripture in Timothy, when Paul is giving Timothy instructions around worship and in church and all that sort of stuff, and he says this in 1 Timothy 2.8, he says, therefore I want the men, everyone say the men. Can we say it with a bit more manliness to it? The men. Everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I think it's interesting to me that Paul specifies to Timothy, I want the men to do this. I want the men to be the ones that pray and lift their hands. Now, I, I don't have any theological proof for this. This is just what I believe based on that and based on my experience. Based on my experience 
and been in church my whole entire life and pastoring and been in leadership for a long, long time, I think that Paul is saying this to men because my experience shows me that often men are the last ones to do this. Us guys are the last ones to lift our hands. Somehow we think being staunch in our seat will get God to turn up. Somehow we seem to be the last one, and I don't know, maybe it's because of pride, maybe it's because we feel awkward and we're more worried about what people think around us. Maybe we feel like this is kind of a chick thing, not really a man thing. But for whatever reason, Paul says here, I want men to lift up holy hands to God. Now I can only imagine why that is, but if I'm guessing, I believe that Paul's saying this to men because he's trying to say to men, hey guys, you set the standard of worship in your family. You set the standard of worship in your family. If you're going to be the leader of your family, then you better lead and worship. There's too many men out there that think they're the head of their home and I'm the man of the house, but and you lead in everything but the things that matter, the things that are spiritual. And then you wonder why your teenagers aren't pursuing Christ because you haven't set a standard for them to follow. It's gone real quiet now. See, Paul wants the children to see the fathers seeking the heart of God. Nothing does your kids any better than a father who seeks, and they love seeing mum do that too, but there's something that happens. Without me trying to, and I'm not being misogynistic about any of this, but there's something that happens in a child's life when they see their father pursuing God with everything they've got. And I believe it's this. I believe that the way that God has designed things is mothers nurture and they teach and they, and they love their kids and they help them to grow. But from, from your dad, you kind of get this identity about who you are. And if, and if your dad is worshipping, you get that identity of, oh, I'm a worshipper too because that's what my dad does. And I believe for us guys is that we need to show our children how to seek after God. You need to be seeking after God for yourself, but you need to show your children how to seek after God. And, and can I just say this? Don't you dare let your children or your wife out-worship you when it comes to Him. You lead the way. You be the example. If you want to lead in anything, lead in that. Be the head of the home in that. Don't be a dictator like some people take that scripture and think that they're the boss and everybody has to do whatever they want. When the Bible says that you're the head of the home, it's because you need to set the example for them to follow. You need to set the tone. You need to be a man after God's own heart. You need to lift up holy hands and to set the standard before anybody else in your family does. Why? Because you want to show your family, in this house, we're worshipers. In this house, we're God pursuers. In this house, we have a heart for God. In this house, we pursue Him in His presence. I don't know what they do in other houses, but in this house, 
This is what we do. In this house, in our house, we shall serve the Lord. I, I don't know what other houses are doing, but in this house, this is what we do. In this house, church isn't optional. We go to church. In this house, youth on a Friday night is not optional. You go to youth. I don't care if you don't like it because my job is not to be your friend. My job is to raise you to be a worshiper so that when you're 45 and 46, you're not worrying about your kids because I've seen Set a standard for you so you can set a standard for your children. The Bible says this, that a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And I believe that that speaks financially, but I believe more importantly, it speaks spiritually. What inheritance are we leaving for our children's children and our children's children's children? You can look at me and say, oh, Craig, you look like you've got things to give. I don't have things to give. But can I just say this? that I'm an eighth generation pastor. I, 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 I carry what I carry because I got an inheritance from my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. It's just every generation that's in there. And you may not have that, but you can start that. Come on. Come on. Let me get back to this so the guys don't feel like I'm beating up on him this morning. Why, why is it that God is so intent on us lifting our hands? Like, why is this such a, such a big deal? And I'm not saying it's a be-all and end-all of worship, but God speaks to it specifically. And Paul speaks to it specifically for a reason. And, and I believe of all of my heart, the reason why God speaks to it specifically is because he absolutely loves it when his children lift their hands in worship. The only way that I can put this into a context so that I understand it is that as a father, I loved it. Not so much now, because if Seth came up to me now at 14, he's taller than me, and, and put his hands up like this, I'm not going to pick him up. But when they were little, when the kids would walk up, I, I, I just couldn't help but want to pick them up, yeah? I used to get growled by Trinity. You're meant to put them to bed. Their place to sleep is their bed, not on the couch on your chest while you're watching the rugby. But if they came into me when it was bedtime and they went like this and I'm on the couch, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not putting them to bed. I'm having a cuddle. Does anybody? All the women are like, There's not a father on earth, a good father on earth that would reject a child's outstretched arms and our heavenly father loves it when we lift our hands towards him. When our hands move towards God, I believe his heart moved towards us. James 4, 8 says, that's a great scripture. When you draw near to God, God draws near to you. It's like he just can't help himself. The minute you reach out to him, he's there. It's like the, the prodigal son story. While yet the prodigal son was afar off, the father saw him and he ran to him. He didn't wait for the prodigal son to come back and grovel and, and ask for forgiveness. As soon as he saw the prodigal son just making a step in his direction, as soon as he became within looking distance of his son coming home, he didn't wait for him, he ran to him. And I think God has the same response to us. As soon as we kind of go, it's just like, whoosh, he's there. 
because he just can't help himself. But when he sees hands raised, he wants to lift them up. Lifting up your hands can be an offering to God. In Psalm 141, it says this, O God, I am calling to you. Please hurry. Listen when I cry out to you for help. Accept my prayer as incense offered to you and my lifted hands as an evening offering. Once again, David at a low point in his life is like, God, come on, hurry up. I need you to answer. But let my prayer be as incense to you. And look, look, I've got my hands lifted as an evening offering to you. As an offering towards you. Some of you today, as we go into some worship a little bit later, this will be the first time you've ever given an offering of lifted hands to God. It may feel like you're kind of, I'm kind of pushing you out of your spiritual comfort zone at the moment, but I just want to say this to you. If you would lift them up and say, God, I'm, I'm offering up my heart to you as an offering of praise to you, even though my, my life may not be where I want it, even though I'm finding this uncomfortable, even though I'm finding this difficult, they may not feel like you're praising him right there in that moment, but I want you to understand that you need to offer him praise anyway. The best time to worship God is when you don't feel like it. The best time to thank Him is when you don't feel like you're seeing what you need to see. Because really what you're saying to Him in that moment is, I'm not worshipping you and I'm praising you for what you have done. I'm praising you and I'm worshipping for you for who you are. And nobody feels more loved when somebody loves them for who they are, not for what they've done. And I just believe that that pleases the heart of God. Another reason for lifting your hands to God is because I believe in lifting your hands to God, you're declaring battle and war and you're asking God for help. And you might be in a real battle right now. You might be in a really dark place right now. If things don't change, you, you might be in a situation where, you, you know, if things don't change, I don't know what I'm going to do. Can I encourage you today? That if, if you're in that battle moment, if you're in that difficult time right moment, the best thing that you could do in that moment is to lift your hands. Because in lifting your hands, you're saying, you know what, I'm declaring battle this morning. I, I need the help of all-powerful God this morning to do the battle for me. I'm declaring a battle and a war against the situation by lifting my hands. And you're like, man, that just sounds a little bit weird. Well, in Exodus chapter 17, there's a story about Moses and Joshua fighting the Amalekites. The Amalekites had come against them. The Amalekites were warring against the Israelites. Can I just say this, because this might help you. The word Amalekites in the Hebrew means flesh. When fleshly things start warring against us, the best thing that we can do is lift our hands and worship and declare war. And so what Moses does, and he comes along to Joshua in chapter 17, and he says to him, hey, Joshua, uh, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to sit or I'm going to stand over the battlefield, and I'm going to lift my hands in worship. And as he's lifting his hands, Israel's winning. As he gets tired and his hands drop, Israel starts losing. Winning, losing. Winning, losing. Winning, losing. And he says this, he says, So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Joshua had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. 
You see, I think that when we lift our hands in that sort of situation, we're declaring that God is sovereign. We're declaring that he has the power to change the circumstance. And while his hands were lifted, Moses, the people of God were winning. But when his arms were no longer up, acknowledging the power of God, acknowledging God's sovereignty, they started to lose. And some of you right now, as I said, are in a battle, and it might feel like you're losing at the moment, but maybe you're losing because you're not worshipping. Maybe you're losing because you've got your hands down rather than your hands up. Declaring war upon what's going on. It might be time for you to lift your hands and say, God, you know what, I trust you no matter what happens. I'm going to lift up my hands on my own. I don't have the ability to get this done. I don't have the ability to defeat this situation. But in spite of what I see, in spite of what I feel, in spite of what's going on, I'm going to continue to praise you because I believe that this is the only option I have. I'm going to lift up my hands and I'm going to declare that the battle is yours. God, I trust you in the midst of this. I declare by faith and lifting my hands that I believe that you're the one who's fighting for me, that you are with me, that greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world, that no weapon formed against me shall prosper, that no words rise up against me shall be accomplished because God is with me and he has a plans to bless me and he has a great future and a hope for me. And so I'm going to trust in this battle that as I lift my hands and declare his power, and his sovereignty and become reliant on him. I am declaring, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know how to fix my marriage. I don't know how to sort out my kids' problems. I don't know what to do about my finances, but I know this much. I know I can lift my hands and I can declare a battle of worship against all those things that are happening in my world and I can trust him to come through for me because while the hands were up, he was winning. While the hands were down, he was losing. And it goes on and it says, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. Can I, Grimmer, can you just grab the chair on the end? And I need you and Murray just for a moment to come up onto the stage. They don't know that this is happening, but hey, who doesn't like surprises? Yep, awesome. I'm going to sit because I'm tired. It's been a big week. I'll have the stone. You need to hold the microphone for me. And so this is what he's saying is that he's sitting on the stone and his arms are tired. And so when his arms get tired, the Bible says that Aaron on one side and her on the other side hold his hands up. So he doesn't have to hold them up himself anymore. He's got people around him. The funny thing is, is her was in charge of the help side, the practical help side of Israel. And Aaron was in charge of the spiritual side 
of Israel. And what happens when we get tired and we start to lose a battle and we start to drop our hands is what we need is we need people around us that are going to speak into our lives spiritually and help us out practically so that we can keep our hands up. They're people that are going to stand with you. They're going to believe in you. They're going to pray for you. They're going to believe in you even when everybody else doesn't believe in you. They're going to stand by you when you make the mistakes, when you make the failures, because they come alongside and they say, man, we got, when you can't keep your hands up, I'll keep your hands up. Thanks, guys. And they'll keep your hands up. And that's why being in church on Sunday is so important because for some of you, you come in here today and your hands are down and you don't know what to do and life just seems to be going in a crazy direction. And, and most people, when that is going on, they don't come to church, they stay home. But if you would just walk through those doors every single Sunday and come into this place as the worship begins and understand that as you lift your hands we're lifting them with you. We're holding them. We're there to pray for you, believe in you, stand with you, help you. You are not alone in this. And when you get tired, that's why God created the church, not to be something that just comes together on Sunday and scatters on Monday to the four corners, but a church that becomes family, that stands, that prays, that believes, that holds on even when life is going crazy. They will help you declare war and why they held his arms up. Joshua had time to defeat the enemy for everybody. And sometimes you just need some people to hold your hands up long enough so that the heavenlies win the battle for you. Some of you need to declare war today by lifting up holy hands. You know, I, I can only explain to you that in the last 13 years that I've been here, there's been people like Rimmer and people like Maria, my beautiful wife, that have stood with me in prayer, stood with me in battle, stood by my side when others didn't, believed in me when they probably shouldn't, believed in me, the best of me when they saw the worst of me. He stood there and continued to hold up my hands. Why? Because when you can't hold up your hands... When you can't do it any longer, you want to be in a place where somebody else will. I don't know about you, but I want to be an Aaron and her to people. I want to be an Aaron and her to people that help them hold their hands up. And some of you today are in a battle, and I'm telling you today, there are people here that want to hold your hands up. But you've got to declare first, God, I, I, I need you. You see, they didn't hold Moses' hands up until he became too tired to hold them up himself. Some of us want people to hold our hands up and we haven't even held them up ourselves. We want to be rescued from our situation. The problem of being rescued from stuff is you remain a victim. If you're always having to be rescued, you will stay a victim because victims are rescued. But what God created you to be is more than a conqueror. He created you to be a victor. And so you need to engage in the battle first. Then when you become tired, God will bring people to help you, not rescue you, but help you keep your hands up until you get the victory. Come on. See, throughout history, lifting hands has always meant one of two things, yeah? Always meant one of two things. Usually this happens 
when you know, the All Blacks defeat Australia. Or when the All Blacks, or when the Black Sticks, or no, not Black Caps, sorry, left it to the last minute today against the West Indies and the second to last over to win. I, I, I saw a picture of the crowd just going, because it's victory. We shout, we lift our hands when there's victory. Everyone stands to their feet in the stadium when a try is scored and it's, You lift your hands for victory and the other reason why you lift your hands is when somebody puts a gun to your head. We lift our hands in victory, but we also lift our hands in surrender is the commonmost thing. When we lift our hands, it either means victory or it means surrender. And here's the crazy thing about the kingdom is that in the presence of God, both of them happen simultaneously. As we surrender, we get victory. As we surrender, we get victory. And my surrender is my victory. And my victory is my surrender. The two happen instantaneously. When we surrender and go, God, you've got to do it, victory comes. While we've got our hands down trying to work it out ourselves and trying to make things happen for ourselves, God's like, can can I tag me in? He's on the ropes, tag me in. I'm going to suplex it, tag me in. When we lift our hands and surrender, victory. And victory and surrender happen simultaneously. Can I just get the music team to come and the singers to come? That'll be awesome. To lift up your hands at things all the time. The Bible says this, that when we lift our hands, it's an offering to him, declaring his greatness declaring who he is, not because he's done anything, but because of who he is. And that the best time to worship him is in the midst of our toughest times. But it also says that as we lift our hands, we're declaring war on those tough situations. I believe that as we engage in worship, where we start off with an offering of saying, we, we, we declare who you are, we love you for who you are, God. That somewhere in that process, as those arms are lifted, it goes from being a declaration about who he is to a declaration about what he's doing for you. Because when God sees hands lifted, he sees surrender, and so he starts to operate in victory. He, he just can't help himself. You know, if, if, if my kid was little, well, even now at this age, if they came running to me and a dog is chasing them, and they ran behind me to get away from this dog, what do you think I would do? Well, Seth's big enough now, I'll just run back around behind. Nah, just a second. What would I do? I'd stand in the gap, yeah? I'd take that dog down. You're not getting to my kid. And sometimes when we're going for a tough time, we come running to him, God, God, and it's, and it's just, initially, it's just the worship of, oh, I don't know what to do, you're my only hope. It's a desperation, it's a surrender. I, 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 I've got to have you do this. And God's like, man, I'll pick you up. And then the dog comes. And all of a sudden, you started off in a a worship of surrendering, God, I need you and I'm desperate to this point where God's just like, boof, booting a snot out of the thing, holding you and protecting you at the same time. The Bible says this, that the enemy is like a roaring lion. He's not a lion, he's like a roaring lion. His, His bark is bigger than his bite. 
and he pursues us, he comes after us, he's trying to trip us up. But those times where we feel like we're just overwhelmed or like the enemy is against us, we don't have to run to God with it all together. In fact, you can run to God even with sin in your world because the Bible says this, that those who um, run to the tower, the righteous shall run to the tower and are saved. In other words, the righteous run into the arms of God and they're saved, but they run in and surrender. Help me, I need you. And somehow in that process of surrender, the victory instantaneously starts to happen because God steps in and he goes, oh, that's my kid. Get out of here. Stop doing that. You may look like a lion, but I am the lion. Come here, pal. I'm going to sort you out. Oh, do I need to remind you that I already defeated you? That the gates of hell shall not prevail against the armies of God. Gates are what are there to protect him, not to keep keep him from us getting in. And God just busts down the walls and he went down into hell. And the Bible says that he made a public spectacle of the devil and dragged him through hell and said, you thought you won. You thought you had this, but I'm the one that has the keys of life and death. I'm the one that's in charge. And all authority I have, I give to them. And they have authority to stamp on scorpions and stamp on the heads of serpents. And you might bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. And so we come in this place of desperation, but all of a sudden there's this moment where it becomes a war in the heavenlies and your surrender becomes your victory and your victory becomes your surrender. But it only comes in worship. And kings, I was joking with the musicians this week, and kings, when they went out to battle, they would send the singers and the musicians out first. I told the musicians it's because they're expendable. And so we just said to them, let them get killed first and keep ourselves safe. But they understood something. They understood when worship is the front line. <laughs> when worship is the front line, you don't need a back line. David said this, you come at me with a sword, I come at you in the name of God, the Almighty One. He started to declare the praises and the goodness of God. I'm not coming at you, bro. You, You don't understand. You think this is about you and me. It's not about you and me. It's about you and Him. I, I I'm just standing back and I'm going to watch the show. And the thing I love about David is that once God broke through for him, says that he cut off the enemy's head with the enemy's own sword. Then he did something really kind of weird. He took the head and took it home with him. Could you imagine that, parents? Kid walks up, mom, look. Blood and everything dripping everywhere. What the heck? Get that out of the house. Why? Because see, when you come and surrender, God brings victory and then he makes a spectacle. It's called a testimony of the greatness of God and it puts the enemy back in its place because we overcome by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. He's already bled for you, friend. we just got to worship Him so that we come and surrender. He comes in victory and then we have a testimony of the goodness of God.